0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, one of the really important qualities for life for dharma practice is perseverance and the idea of a long-term vision of practice. We have in the vipassana community, uh, insight practice, a uh, great emphasis on attention to the present moment, here and now. and if, But if that's done uh, too exclusively, it shortchanges us. Because a very important part of human life is also the vision of what's possible into the future. What we work towards. We enter the present moment as fully as we can to support our ability to fulfill that vision of freedom, of personal development, of making a difference and making the world better, and uh, and that uh, perseverance to continue and con- with practice uh, uh, is a very important quality because with all things there's ups and downs and challenges, and to just persevere and continue and continue uh, over time, amazing things begin happening in practice just with a regularity and the continuity and many years ago, um, some years ago, some friends of mine, uh, well about 30 years ago, some friends of mine went to hear the Dalai Lama. And they came back and told a story of uh, being there. It was a big amphitheater in Arizona, uh, big stadium, I guess, many, many people, thousands of people there. And, And Dalai Lama was giving like a weekend teachings. He was teaching much through the weekend and I guess periodically he would have take questions from the audience. And this man stood up to ask a question and asked, um, uh, what's the fastest way to enlightenment? And the Dalai Lama, uh, as the report goes, uh, stood there quietly for a long time, didn't say anything. And at some point uh, he started crying a little bit, tears going down his cheeks. And then at some point he, s- he spoke. And he spoke about how um, something like, I, I wasn't there so I can't recapture, you know, express his words exactly, but how I remember them. That he was quite sad about this idea of the quickest way to enlightenment. That there's a certain kind of greed and certain maybe it's even arrogance sometimes that we have to get you know, the fastest, quickest. That the point of practice is to get enlighten- enlightenment. But sometimes, uh, for the Dalai Lama, there's a kind of a long-term vision, a long-term vision for his people in Tibet, a long-term vision of practice, and to steadily persevere and practice and grow and develop. And too often, when uh, people are pushing their practice too quickly, like for enlightenment, and they have some significant experiences that are very meaningful, but if there's too much of an emphasis on that, the long-term growth and development of all of who we are, the fullness of who we are, all aspects of ourselves get shortchanged. changed That the full maturation of a person in Buddhism takes time. It's something we have to persevere and with life challenges and involvements and just keep going. When um, um, there's stories told of uh, olive farmers in the Mediterranean, who, when they get old, maybe in their 70s and 80s, that they'll plant olive trees, still be planting olive trees, even though the olive trees, it'll take 20 years for them to start bearing fruit. And uh, and the fruit, and the chances are those trees will not bear fruit in their lifetime. They're not planting the trees for themselves. They're planting, they have a vision of what's possible in the future and so they're kind of planting seeds for what's going to come into the future. When uh, I had the good fortune of meeting a wonderful Buddhist monk named Maha he was considered the Gandhi of India, of uh, Cambodia when the Pol Pot uh, you know had, uh, had genocide slaughtered you know millions of Cambodians. Uh, in 1976 there were 60,000 Buddhist monks in Cambodia. By the time the genocide is fin- had finished and three years later, there are only 3,000 left still alive. And uh, Mahagosananda was one of them and he survived because he was living in Thailand at that time. And um, and there's a... Uh, Jack Cornfield uh, went to see him, once knew him in Thailand. They were in the same monastery for a while practicing and uh, with Ajahn Chah. And... Um, and Mahagosananda went to the refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodian border uh, to support and to minister to the Cambodian refugees. And he was warned not to go there. Both the Thai government didn't want him there and, uh, and apparently the Pol Pot also didn't want him there and he, you know, he was threatened with his life. But he would go anyway and uh, some of these refugees hadn't seen a Buddhist monk for a long time and to have a Buddhist monk came was quite impactful for them. And the story goes of him standing up on the stage with thousands of people in the refugee camp all around him. And he started chanting uh, some of the familiar chants th- that they knew they hadn't heard for a long time. And imagine this, this huge trauma. Mahagosanand himself lost his entire family, his friends, his communities that were left in Cambodia. They died or killed. So here he is, Mahagosananda comes up on this stage in an open area with thousands of refugees around, and he starts chanting, and they start crying, hearing what they hear. But uh, one of the chants he uh, uh, he chanted, which apparently they knew and they would recite it back to him or with him, was the simple chant that hate is never overcome by hate. By love alone is hate overcome. This is the ancient uh, truth. So the, um, so what a what a phenomenal thing to come message to bring into refugee camps where probably many of those refugees had seen horrendous horrendous things happen to their, their people and and uh, lost their country and so much and he came with that message of hope. When I met him. Uh, he had already gone back to Cambodia at the end of the Pol Pot times. He'd been there for, I think, maybe uh, uh, about 10 years, uh, helping with the reconstruction of the country and bringing peace to the country. And I met him from breakfast one day. And I uh, had the good fortune of being sitting together. And uh, and so I asked him a question. Um, maybe, it was, maybe it was a little bit rude, but... I really, sincerely wanted to find out what he would say as an answer. And, um, and uh, I, I'd learned that he had spent uh, time dedicating himself to uh, tree planting in Cambodia, among as many things that he did. And I asked him, said, why do you, as a Buddhist monk, uh, spend time planting trees? You know, you could be teaching, training m- new monks, you know, all kinds of things. But why planting trees? And uh, here this old man said, he was probably, when I talked to him, uh, he was probably in his 80s, uh, right around that, maybe around 80 years old. And he looked at me very kindly, and he said, um, uh, the Buddha was born under a tree, was enlightened under a tree, taught under a tree, and died under trees. So that's all he said in reply. But I I heard him, you know, that he thought trees were really important and a place for the Dharma, a place of practice, a place where people can connect to something really important. And here he was planting trees, trees that probably would never come to maturity in his lifetime. But he was also planting for the future. He had this longer vision of what was possible. And this idea of... uh, of um, persevering and the longer vision and, you know, not to lose track of this bigger uh, span of time that we live in and how things come and they go and they change and how the past is really close by and the future is not far away. And that what we do now can have a huge impact for the future. What we do now is can be connected, or what's happening in society is connected to the past. And I was struck by this uh, this last week when I read in the Washington Post a story of a man named Daniel Smith, 88-year-old man uh, who, uh, 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 father, his father had him late in life. His father was 70 when he was born. And um, so, you know, 88, uh, and uh, he said 157. So 157 years before the, now, I guess, that his father was born. And uh, that's a phenomenal length of time. And it turns out uh, that it was in 1863. Turns out his father was born a slave in Alabama in the American South. And here we have today living in Virginia, a man whose father was born a slave. You know, I read about the American history in in schools and it just seemed like that was like far away, ancient times. But I can imagine that for Daniel Smith it isn't so ancient. And he his father and he witnessed all this so many of the cycles of Jim Crow uh, laws and uh, racial segregation and uh, and um, all the rules and laws and, and ways of pre- uh, preventing African American blacks to vote he was part of the civil rights movement and um, saw this coming and going of all this stuff and um uh, He said that when much of his life, the 157 years since his father's birth, had once seemed like a huge gap, like this empty space, but that now the time strikes him as distressingly brief. Um, he, He said that time feels like an accordion with the time just folding back, folding down, coming back together. So, The impact of the past of 157 years still lives in so many different ways in this country. And what happens today, what happens now these years can live 157 years into the future. To have this long-term vision, what is the world that we're contributing to? What are the olive trees that we're planting? What's gonna? What do we do now? Do we are we interested in the world of the future, and do we want to live in such a way that we are caring for future generations of people? One of the remarkable people uh, we've been reading about this last week is John Lewis, and um, and he was uh, I, I I I love I'm very inspired by he and his colleagues who in the 1960s were dedicated to the movement of nonviolent civil disobedience. That uh, uh, Disciples of Gandhi and the American tradition of Henry Thoreau, where there was a very strong dedication to to nonviolence and a training in nonviolence. And then that takes perseverance, that takes dedication. The ability, the strength to persevere against tremendous odds and um, and the willingness in a certain way to be physically harmed for the sake of freedom, for the sake of justice. It's a remarkable thing. It's kind of counterintuitive for some people, but it creates greater good. I think John Lewis created greater good than if he'd picked up a, a, a rifle and a gun and. And hated and shot and was violent with people. His example of nonviolence and others people like him was a turning point of American history with the civil rights movement. And and um, the story he tells of uh, this remarkable story, you know, he by the time he was 20, 23, he had been arrested twenty four times. By the time he was that age, he'd been beat up many times. He was one of the first of the freedom riders who took buses, uh, insisted they could sit on buses uh, when desegregation happened, but in the South, people weren't allowing it yet. And uh, one of the tactics him and his colleagues had was to go into waiting rooms in uh, bus stops that were segregated, whites only waiting rooms. And uh, they would be attacked with bats and crates and all kinds of things and, um, and they would keep doing it, keep doing it. And, um, uh, and, uh, and these stories of what happened. So I'll tell you one story of someone who came to me at a retreat. Um, she had been, I don't know, a freedom writer, but she had been a civil rights worker, a white person who had gone down to the South during the 1960s. And she had stood on a street corner with, uh, friends, uh, doing a non-violent, uh, silent protest against racism down there. And, uh, and then at some point, a pickup truck came up with uh, a bunch of white men who uh, were opposed to them standing there. And these white men jumped out of the pickup truck and started to beat them up with their fists. The next day, her and her friends were went back to the same place to protest again. The same pickup truck came with the same men. They jumped out and beat them up. The third day, she said to me, they, jumped at, uh, they were there again. The same men came and uh, I guess there was a man who came and was standing over her and he had his fist poised to strike her again. And he looked down into her eyes, they looked at each other and he, he stopped and he said, what in the world are you doing? And that day there was no more beating up. That day was the beginning of a dialogue. You start having a conversation with this man. I don't know what the follow up was, but the idea of being able to change someone who is violent and hateful through our willingness to be present for it and to protest takes perseverance, takes dedication. I think Buddhist practice with its tremendous dedication on non-harming is also very aligned with the idea of civil disobedience. To stay present, to not succumb to hate. That's where the perseverance is most powerful. To not succumb to hate. And to stay there, not succumb to violence. This is, this is the power that this practice we do can bring us and can be expression of it in our lives. So John Lewis, um, there's this wonderful story. Uh, so in, he was going to the South, going into these all-white waiting uh, waiting rooms. And uh, in Montgomery, he did it. And uh, sure enough, immediately, these bunch of white people attacked him and his friends. And uh, apparently, he was hit over the head with a crate and was uh, ended up unconscious, and that maybe ended up in the hospital. He had a lifelong scar in his head from this particular event. And, um, and uh, so th- this happened over and over again. When Barack Obama became president, the, um, uh, there was a man in the South who had been there in Montgomery in that waiting room. And he had lots of hate and lots, lots and lots of hate towards uh, black people and uh, no shortage of expressing it to others. And it turns, um, turns out when Barack Obama was elected as president, uh, he liked what he saw in Barack Obama, and he started to have remorse for how he'd been in the 1960s. And he went to find people to apologize for how he'd been a racist back then. Remarkably, he went and found John Lewis, because he was a person who had hit, used a crate to knock him out. He was the most, you know, the most vicious of the people attacking John Lewis. And he went and found John Lewis and he apologized. And John Lewis uh, accepted it and forgave him. Um, um, so this idea, so the perseverance, the, you know, 40 years later or something like that, 30 years later, that um, 40 years later that... Uh, that um, it took that long for John Lewis’s nonviolent civil disobedience and his willingness to stand there and be hurt uh, in that f- tremendous fight for justice, that this man, I, also his name is um, um, Elwin Wilson. Elwin Wilson was, had his heart changed. So are we living for the present only, or are we living also for the future? This is very important when it comes to things like hate. Hate, which I think maybe should be better uh, expressed as hostility. That hostility causes tremendous harm down through the generations. Hostility is a way of harming oneself. The person who's hostile hurts themselves. And I think of hostility as really coming from the kind of the surface of the heart. It comes from a lack of confidence in the depths and strengths of the heart. It comes from a reaction of pain, of anger, of frustration, and a certain kind of uh, misconfidence, the confidence that violence or hostility uh, is effective. And um, it's only effective at the best for a temporary relief if it's successful to get something to go away. But hostility always harms the hostile. And so this is what becomes clear when we sit and meditate. When we start awakening the inner life and the inner life, the heart, becomes more and more clear what's going on then we start feeling the impact that things like hostility have, and we start maybe feeling it's not worth it. We shouldn't do this. That there's better places to come from. So a simple thing to, uh, to um, uh, a simple things to say is, um, you know that the, uh, uh, you know. The, uh, you know we might have anger towards people of a different political persuasion, and uh, some of them upset us quite a bit. Quite a bit. And recently, someone asked me, "How can I have compassion for these people uh, who I'm so opposed with?" And my reply was: um, First, uh, overcome your hostility. First, have no hate. Then we'll talk about compassion that to leapfrog over the inner work to resolve, to free ourselves from hostility and hate, to leapfrog over that into compassion because it's a great ideal, doesn't, I don't believe it really is very effective. And so to look at our, to really work through what's going on with us, how hostility is always a surface phenomena. We're not really deeply connected and rooted in ourselves when we're acting from hostility. And so to really discover that and explore it and be with it. And to remember that um, what, like the first ethical principle in Buddhism is non-harming. No question about it, That's the first principle. And if there's anything that we are, you know, we have this teaching in Buddhism of not-self, which is... But if there's something that we are, the self that we, at, this is, as a minimum, the self that we should be is um, if we have hostility, we should be, we are the one who refrains. We are the person that refrains from causing harm. And to have confidence in that person, to have val- that's where If that's where strength resides, that's where personal power resides, that's where all kinds of good things inside of us, isn't that restraint? When there's no longer need for restraint because there's no more hostility, then then maybe we drop the idea that that's who we are. Then we don't need to be that anymore. But this is so important, this idea of not causing harm. So restraint, training ourselves, being willing to look for an alternative way to take care of and deal with difficulties and challenges, alternative to hostility. And to see that as something that's going to last for way beyond your lifetime We live in this vast scope of time and things come and they go, the challenges of human life, they come and they go and we are in our own challenging times. It's not an exception to the pattern of humanity to be in these kinds of uh, times when there's lots of hostility and, and hate, unfortunately. But we can be the people who don't hate, but not to be passive, but no matter what side of the political persuasion you might be, to be dedicated to not being hostile, to not hating, that's where strength can be. And then perhaps we can meet each other and find our way. Maybe maybe there is a third way, a different way that no one knows yet, that doesn't have to be in this, a uh, caught in the grip of oppositional politics. Maybe there's a way in which non-harming, and a real dedication to to uh, to civil disobedience, opposing what we feel is wrong in a non-harmful way, can help all of us find a third way, a new way, can create the conditions for all kinds of trees to grow in 20 30 40 years all kinds of things to change and in the slow way that sometimes they change uh, may all of us have the perseverance and dedication and the restraint of a John of John Lewis may all of us have the fortitude and dedication of a Mahagosananda. May all of us plant trees that will last long beyond our lifetime so that we are planting seeds of peace, seeds of goodness, seeds of of welfare and mutual respect for all people. May all people Live at peace. Thank you.